Well, last time we were in Matthew, we considered Jesus beginning his ministry in Galilee. And that was a region about 75 miles north of Jerusalem by the Sea of Galilee, which is a a big inland lake. And Jesus came as light to those in darkness. And as he preached and as he taught, the light of his truth pierced the darkness of ignorance and unbelief. As he healed, his miracles demonstrated who he was, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And they demonstrated his power to heal and, to, and his willingness to heal not just physical ailment, but also spiritual ailment. And now we come to Matthew 5. And we get a detailed look at what Jesus taught. Matthew 5 through 7 is the first great block of teaching in the book of Matthew. And it's, it's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus delivered this teaching from a mountain. And today we're going to carefully consider just a line from this sermon. But Lord willing, in the coming months, we'll work our way through the whole thing. Now, what's this sermon about? The Sermon on the Mount. Is it just a random collection of wise sayings and and, and moral teachings? Uh, just, Just a random collection of rules to live by? Is it maybe a code of morals for the ultra religious? You know, those on the path to sainthood or something? No, it isn't. This sermon, as it'll become increasingly clearer the more we get into it, it's not just a, a code of morals for ultra-religious people. This Sermon on the Mount is meant for all of Jesus' disciples, all that would follow Him. This is the ABCs of Christianity. This sermon applies to all who would have Jesus as their King and as their Savior. This sermon describes the pathway of discipleship It shows what it looks like to follow Christ as Lord, to walk the path of repentance. This sermon, the commands in this sermon are are faith in Christ lived out. It's how a heart that trusts Jesus lives differently in light of that trust. It's how a heart that loves Jesus expresses that love for him. Now the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount is a list describing those who are blessed. It's one of the more familiar parts of the New Testament. The Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They're called Beatitudes because in the Latin version of the New Testament, the word beati, which is translated blessed, it, it means simply a pronouncement of blessedness upon those who are included in these categories. Now this morning we'll be considering the first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we're going to take it in two parts this morning. First we'll think about what is the blessing promised? What is the blessing? And secondly, who are the blessed? So point one will be what's the blessing? And point two, who are the blessed? Who's the blessing for? But before we do that, let's go ahead and read the the text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, 
please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and start with me in verse 1. You can follow along as I read. It says, Seeing the crowds, he, which is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So first, what is the blessing promised in this text? What's the blessing promised? Well, it's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, or as Luke calls it in his gospel, the kingdom of God, this, this isn't so much a geographical place with you know, borders and a, and a capital city. There's th- that spatial meaning is secondary. It's not first and foremost what, what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is God's rule and reign. It's His dominion. The sphere of His power. You could call it, as, as Dr. D.A. Carson puts it, His kingdom dominion. He reigns in the hearts of His people, and He reigns, in one sense, over all creation. There's an aspect of God's kingdom that's universal. He, he reigns over everything. But in the New Testament, when it speaks of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, it's mainly referring to that part of the kingdom over which God exercises His redemptive reign, His sovereign protection. So, He rules in the hearts of His people, They lovingly call Him Lord, for He is their King and Sovereign. And this is the sense in which the Kingdom of Heaven is is spoken of most places in the New Testament. In John's Gospel, in John 3, Jesus says that only the one born from above, born of the Spirit, born again, can see the Kingdom of God, let alone enter it. We're all born into the Kingdom of Darkness, but we must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light. In Matthew 8, Jesus commends the faith of a Gentile centurion, a Roman military commander. And here's what he says there. He says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice that Jesus here speaks of two locations. The kingdom of heaven and the outer darkness. Which is another way of speaking of hell. In the New Testament, to be left out of the kingdom at last is to find yourself in hell. But to have the kingdom, to be in the kingdom of God is to have salvation and eternal life. Now, there was an aspect in which the kingdom of heaven came when Jesus came. Jesus told his opponents in Matthew 12, 28, he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, which we know is the case, 
If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then he said, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice the verb tense, has come. So he's saying here that that it's here, even now, as he was going around and doing these miracles, casting out demons. In coming to earth and beginning to conquer the devil's dominion, casting out demons and gathering a group of people who were born again and submitting to his lordship, Jesus was bringing his reign to earth. He was extending his redemptive rule, his saving protection over his people. So in part, the kingdom is already among us. We're already in the kingdom if you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's an already sense to the kingdom And yet there's also a not yet sense, a not yet aspect of the kingdom of heaven. You know, Jesus, he calls his followers to pray that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. So there's something more about the kingdom of heaven that we're still looking forward to that hasn't been fully consummated yet. There's something else to come. There's much more and much better to look forward to in the kingdom of heaven than even what we experience right now. So there's an already and there's a not yet to the kingdom of heaven. One of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves is this. Am I in the kingdom of heaven? Am I part of God's kingdom? Is he my king and my savior? You know, Jesus told the crowds that followed him, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And don't do the things that I tell you. Is he our king? Are we following him? Have we bowed the knee to King Jesus? So, we've considered what it is to be blessed from this text this morning. To be in the kingdom of heaven is to have eternal life with God. To be under his redemptive rule. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But this brings us to our second point. Who are the blessed? Who are these poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Who does the kingdom of heaven belong to? So in this first of the Beatitudes here in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus teaches that it is to the poor in spirit. It is to them that the kingdom of heaven belongs. Now this poverty of spirit, this is not referring to material poverty. Notice that it says poor in spirit. This has something to do with your spirit, not your wallet, not your bank account. This has to do with our spiritual condition. It has to do with the way we see ourselves before God and the way we see ourselves in comparison to others. The word translated poor here, in the original Greek, it came from a verb meaning to shrink, to cower, to cringe, as beggars often would do in that day as they, as they crouched down begging for something, begging for money or a crust of bread. Dr. MacArthur explains that classical Greek used the word patokos, translated poor in this text, to refer to a person reduced to total destitution, who crouched in a corner begging 
As he held out one hand for alms, he often hid his face with the other hand because he was ashamed of being recognized. The term didn't simply mean poor. There was another Greek word for that that, that, returned to, that referred to just common poverty. But this was a special depth of destitution. To be poor in spirit is to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before God. To own yourself as utterly lacking any spiritual resources to please God in any way. That we have nothing with which we can earn God's favor, merit His smile or His blessing. All of our best deeds are before Him as filthy rags. It's to recognize that that we're in a hole too deep to dig ourselves out of. It's to be a spiritual beggar, utterly destitute spiritually and dependent on God's mercy alone, recognizing that we have nothing to offer God in return. It's to see that, that you are in God's debt and you have nothing with which to repay Him. And the only thing you can do is plead for mercy. Plead that He would remit that debt and and cancel that debt. You can't promise Him that you you have the resources to pay Him back later. The only thing you can do is ask for mercy and, and pardon. Now naturally, nobody is born poor in spirit. This isn't a, a natural tendency that some of some of us just have by nature. It's not a personality trait. Until our spiritual eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit, we all tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We, we tend to think that we're better off spiritually than we really are. We naturally tend to trust in ourselves that we can please God as we are. Or at least that it's within our ability to do so if we really you know, get our act together and, and try harder. There's at least something we can do. And there's at least someone that we're not as bad as. You know, at least we're not like that guy over there. We compare ourselves to others thinking, you know, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Jesus told a story of two men who went to the temple to pray. One was an exemplary, upstanding, law-abiding citizen. Somebody well-respected in his community. And listen to him pray. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But over yonder there stood another man. He was a despised outcast of society. He was hated because of the way he'd turned on family and friends and nation to help the oppressive Romans to gather taxes for Caesar. And why? For money, for financial gain. These tax collectors, they would support lavish lifestyles by taking extra money from taxpayers more than they actually owed in taxes. To Jesus' audience, tax collector 
was just another term for scum of the earth. These were the, the refuse of society. Nobody liked tax collectors. If anyone would be in hell, it would be the tax collector. So what's this man doing in the temple? What right does he have to be in the house of God, worshiping God, the sinner that he is? Well, notice he's standing afar off. Evidently, he knows that he's not supposed to be here. He doesn't feel that he has the right to be in the place of worship. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He knew he had no right to pray to God because he sinned so grievously. His eyes burned with tears and he beat his chest in agony, in shame before God. You can imagine the Pharisee looking over at this guy, making such a scene. You know, what a spectacle. What's this guy doing here? I mean, he looks shameful, and he ought to be ashamed, right? I'm glad I'm not him. Glad my, my mom raised me right. But which of these two do you think was poor in spirit? Which one recognized his spiritual bankruptcy before God? Which one, as a spiritual beggar, begged for God's mercy? It was the tax collector, the sinner. Jesus told the parable, it says in Luke 18, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The well-respected man in this story, the Pharisee, he trusted in himself that he was righteous. He felt that he had something to commend him to God. That he had reasons in himself why God ought to love him and accept him. This self-righteous attitude of the Pharisee, it's the opposite of being poor in spirit. The tax collector, he was a sinner and he knew it. He knew there was no reason in himself why God should love him or accept him. He knew that his condition was utterly helpless before God. God had every right to cast him away forever. He didn't presume. He didn't assume. But he begged for mercy. He doesn't waste any time comparing himself with others. He's too crushed under the weight of his own guilt, his own shame. He's exposed by the blinding light of God's holiness, and he has nowhere to hide, no excuses to make for what he's done. He simply confesses his sin before God, and he pleads for mercy. He didn't trust in himself that he was righteous. Far from it. That man was poor in spirit. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, forgiven, rather than the other. In other words, his was the kingdom of heaven. His sins were forgiven. Now, poverty of spirit, it is not popular in our day. That's an understatement. 
In fact, to many, this attitude would be seen as detrimental. This is a, a negative attitude. You know, we're encouraged to affirm ourselves, to love ourselves, to stop believing that you're not good enough. To think of ourselves as unworthy before God, as sinful wretches, deserving only of God's wrath and punishment. Why, that's just toxic negativity. We need to get rid of all those kind of thoughts. Instead, you know, we're told to stop believing the lie that we're not good enough. We need to believe, we're told, you know, tell yourself in the morning, I am worthy. I am enough, just as I am. In other words, we're totally worthy of God's love. How could God not love one such as I? We just need to stop doubting, we're told. We just need to accept that and start loving ourselves more because, well, we deserve to be loved. But this type of thinking, so common in the world around us and sadly, even common in churches and in Christian bookstores, this type of thinking is the opposite of being poor in spirit. This type of thinking says, I have what it takes. I am enough. I am worthy. It's self-sufficient. It's self-trusting. It's self-loving. This type of thinking, it sounds a lot like the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. They said of themselves, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. That was their opinion of themselves. Self-sufficiency, a high view of self. They thought they had what it, what it took spiritually. But God looked at them and said, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea, they did not realize how desperate their spiritual condition was. God was displeased with their proud thinking. Now notice, God did say of them, he, in his description of the church in Laodicea, he did say, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. He did call them poor. And this brings up an important reality. See, the problem is, though all of us really are spiritually destitute, not all of us recognize that. Though the church in Laodicea was deeply needy, they didn't think they were. They thought they had it all together. All of us, in reality, are poor. We are utterly helpless apart from God. We've broken His law and deserve His wrath and are at His mercy. But not all are poor in spirit. Not all see themselves as poor. Not all recognize their need and come to Christ to beg for His mercy. All of us will perish apart from the living water of Christ. And that way we're all in the same condition. But not all see this. Not all recognize their thirst and come to Him in poverty of spirit to drink of the water of life freely. All of us are deathly sick apart from the great physician. But not all will give up their futile efforts to try to heal themselves and come humbly to the only one who can. Only the poor in spirit. 
So who are the blessed? Who are the poor in spirit? Those who recognize themselves to be utterly helpless, utterly hopeless, unless God should find it within himself to show them kindness and mercy. They understand themselves to be lost forever unless God show mercy. It's only these that come to Christ for forgiveness. And when they come, they receive a wealth of pardon and mercy bought by the priceless blood of Christ, worth more than all the, all the riches this world could ever offer. And their song is, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Is this your song this morning? Or are you still clinging to the hope that, you know, you haven't been as bad as so-and-so? Are you still clinging to the, the idea that maybe you've lived a pretty decent and respectable life and your good outweighs your bad and, you know, surely God wouldn't condemn you. I mean, you're not Hitler or somebody. Do you comfort yourself that, you know, though you aren't perfect, God knows your heart. Please give up. If that's you this morning, give up all those false hopes. Cast yourself completely at his mercy who lived and died to save not the righteous, but sinners. Come to him confessing that you have no reason why he should forgive a sinner like you except that Christ died for that very reason. Come to him, the Savior of sinner, asking, asking him to show you mercy for Christ's sake. Jesus came and he lived perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead to save sinners. To cleanse their guilty records with his own blood. Come to the risen Christ. His nail-pierced hands are still extended to save all who come to him as spiritual beggars. He pardons them, not because they can ever repay him, but simply because he is merciful. If you're here and you have any questions about what it means to be saved, but what that would look like in your life, please come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to, to share that with you. So a few words of application, and then we'll close. First of all, how can I be poor in spirit? How can I grow in humility? What a great question to ask. That's a good desire. And though every true Christian has been humbled, though every true Christian is poor in spirit, it's also something that we can always grow in. It's kind of like, you know, every true believer has faith in Christ, and yet our faith is always something that can be strengthened. It's always something that can we can increase in. And the same is true with being poor in spirit. We shouldn't read over this beatitude and think, oh, I'm saved, you know, I've got that down. We can always grow in this area. But we need to recognize that being poor in spirit is not something that we can achieve by our own efforts. It's not something that we can, 
give ourselves by maybe depriving ourselves of something, of, of comfort, or maybe by pursuing a, a life of asceticism, maybe giving away all of our goods and living in poverty voluntarily. If anything, asceticism focuses our attention more on ourselves and that's, that just feeds our pride. Didn't the Pharisee, you know, notice what he thought to himself. He thought, I fast twice a week. You know, he was depriving himself. He was trying to, to humble himself. And it wasn't helping him much. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones observes that this was the whole error of the monks and the monastic movement. In answering the question, how does one become poor in spirit... He said, the answer is that you do not start by looking to yourself. You don't begin by trying to do things to yourself. That was the whole error of monasticism in the, in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Those poor men and their desire to do this, they said to themselves, I must go out of society. I must scarify my flesh and suffer hardship. I must mutilate my body. You know, they'd beat themselves. No, no. The more you do that, he said, the more conscious you will be of yourself and the less poor in spirit. And he's right. Doing that type of thing will just make you think more about how hard you're working at being humble. It'll give you something else to boast about. Someone has put it well. Humility is not thinking less of yourself as much as it is thinking of yourself less. Humility isn't just thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. The way to be poor in spirit then is to take our eyes off of ourselves and focus our attention on Christ, to fix our gaze on the God who made us. To see Him more clearly in His Word, in the Bible, considering it carefully and prayerfully, Ask God to give you a clear vision of Himself in His Word so that you would stand in awe at His glory and His power and His sovereignty and His wisdom and holiness. And as you consider His eternity and His purity and His mercy, you can't help but being humbled. A right view of God quickly puts you in your place. It humbles us like nothing else can. So study deeply to see God, to know God in prayer and studying the scriptures and, and see how far we fall short of his standards. But then run and drink from the fountain of grace. It's only when we get our eyes off of ourselves and look at God that we will be put in our place. Next, for Emmanuel Baptist, for us as a church, when we're poor in spirit, we'll be desperate for God's help in our ministry. We'll recognize that in our own strength, we don't have what it takes to love people. We don't have what it takes to reach our community for Christ. We don't have what it takes to bring the lost salvation. We can't do it in our own strength. Apart from God's help, there's no amount of education or expertise. There's no amount of knowledge or experience that can build the church 
or fulfill the Great Commission. These things are good, but we must be careful not to rely on them. See, we're only as strong as we are dependent on Christ. His Word does the work. His Word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, causes believers to grow. It brings the lost to salvation. His Word builds His church. So how heavily do we rely on God's Word? How heavily do we rely on the Word of God in our evangelism? Are we remembering that the power is in the Gospel message itself that we proclaim? It's not, it's not in our ability as skilled communicators. It's in the Gospel itself. How central are the Scriptures to our, our philosophy of ministry? And our way of doing things as a church. You know, the, the Protestant reformers had this saying, semper reformanda. It meant, it was Latin for always reforming. They knew that they had to continually be examining the scriptures and, and seeing how those scriptures would teach them and, and inform the way they did their life, the way they did ministry. And that should be our motto as well always reforming, always going back to the Word of God and taking our cues from the Scripture. Always reforming the way we do things in the light of what the Bible says. How desperately do we come to God in prayer together as a church? Knowing that unless He help us, all our work is in vain. You know, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. When prayer becomes an afterthought, we know we're drifting from desperate dependence upon God. We know we've come to presume in our own abilities. Being poor in spirit makes us grateful people. Whatever our lot in life, we know it's far better than what we truly deserve. If God really gave us what we deserve, it would be an eternity in hell. And so no matter how tough things get, we always have a reason to be grateful. We always have a reason. Looking to Christ and the joy that is set before us. Being poor in spirit means we're willing to be a servant of all. There's no task that's below us. Regardless of our position in society or the church or, or in our family, you know, we're not too important to take out the trash. We're not too important to clean the bathroom or sweep the floor or mow the lawn. If we're poor in spirit, we should be done with any notion of superiority over others. We should never compare ourselves with other people in order to feel better about ourselves. Instead of seeing others as, as some kind of evil other, We'll look into their eyes and, and see ourselves apart from God's grace. We'll recognize, there go I, but for the grace of God. I remember a while back, a man coming to me while I was, I was studying for one of my classes, and you know, I was busy at work, and here comes this guy out of nowhere. And I recognized him, and I knew, I didn't know him well, but I, I knew enough about him that I knew he was a pretty serious sinner. He'd done some pretty terrible things. And um, in fact, he was even in legal trouble because of it. 
But here he comes. He's coming towards me. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? At first, I was a bit nervous to even have him near me. You know, what if someone saw me talking to such a man as this? What would they think of me? To see me sitting and, and talking to this guy. Have you ever been around somebody like that? Knowing about his sins, I, I felt a bit of disgust, even annoyance, rise up within me. As it turned out, he was feeling a bit down, and he, he needed someone to talk to, someone to vent to. And as he shared his troubles, I began to feel some conviction. God reminded me that he and I weren't all that different. Even, even if our sins were different, we were cut from the same cloth. Within my sinful flesh, apart from God's grace, was the full capacity to do all the things He'd done and more. If God's grace hadn't intervened and arrested me before the law arrested me, before those sins that were in my heart came to fruition, that could be me. I'd be in the same place. I have no reason to feel superior, superior to that guy. It's only God's grace that makes us differ. We need to remember, even as we tremble at the sins of others around us, we need to remember that God's grace can do for them the same thing that it's done for us. And they, we might spend eternity with that person. They might be a brother in Christ as well. They might be one more beggar to find out where the bread is. So in closing, may the Lord remind us of our helplessness and hopelessness apart from Christ. If you've never come to see this, I pray that you would see this this morning. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Dear God, I pray, Lord, we pray, make this the heart song of each one of us in this room today. Oh God, be merciful to us, a sinner. May this be our song. May we come to you empty-handed each day, looking to be filled. For you alone can fill us, you alone can heal us, you alone can save our souls. You alone can strengthen us. Apart from you, Lord, we are nothing. Help us to remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.